Welcome to episode 5 of Sound Learnings, a podcast about education in audio, music technology and music production, sponsored by Routledge. My name is Tim Canfer, and I'm joined by your other hosts, Russ Hupwasoya and Carola Baum. I'm recording this intro in early February, and the recording of this episode took place at the end of July 2020. This episode is a chat with Bill Evans, executive producer of the prog rock supergroup Flying Colours. He's also a tech developer, academic, lecturer, an all-round inspirational dude. We talk about the tensions between academia and industry, and the importance of research, especially in response to creative pull, which is officially my new favourite phrase. Bill spills the development beans on several of his cutting-edge tech projects, and we all unashamedly geek out. As you may expect, the discussions centre around Bill's work with Flying Colours, and as such, this is the most name-dropping heavy episode yet. Prepare for rock legend anecdotes aplenty. So this is where we start our conversation, with Bill explaining how and why he put together Flying Colours. Enjoy! Flying Colours was a thing where I kind of looked at it like a fantasy football kind of thing, where it was like, okay, if I had my dream band, who would be in it? And like, what kind of music would we play? And that's sort of where I started with it. Mm. I drafted a creative plan and I realized I'd need a producer. So the first person I actually got on board was Peter Collins. So I went to his flat in England and I was utterly surprised that he was interested in doing it. But he was apparently really interested in working with Steve Morris in particular. Mm. It's amazing to watch him work because, you know, you have these virtuoso, some of them living legend musicians. And I'm thinking, mm. Mm. what kind of producer are they going to respond to? You know, because if you're going to tell Mike Portnoy what to play, <laughs> you got to present that in a very you know, specific kind of way because he knows what he's doing. Mm. <laughs> I wanted Peter and I told Peter that we couldn't do the thing without him because he was the only producer I knew who could do it. He'd worked with Rush and sort of convinced them to, instead of doing, you know, 20 minute songs about unicorns and to have Getty, you know, sing an octave lower and to do five minute pop songs. And he was able to do that in such a way that the guys in Rush were like, yeah, we, we really like that. So were you already here in the UK when you approached Peter or were you still in the US? I was in the UK, which made that a lot easier to go nice. visit him. I, I, I asked most of the people uh, in person. I was on tour with Neil Morse Band. I think we were playing at Sweden Rock and, that, and that's when I spoke to Mike. It was amazing to watch watch Peter work. It was, it was like poetry. <laughs> he always knew exactly how to say things so nobody objected to the fact that he was saying anything. There was never a single <laughs> argument or dispute wow. or, or anything. It was absolutely amazing. And then he did a, a, a wonderful, wonderful job. That's cool. He did. I wonder if we could chuck back a, a little bit. Could we get like a potted history of your experience in music industry and education and how they kind of came together? Sure. I started my career working with uh, my favorite musician uh, of all time, who's uh, Carrie Livgren of the band Kansas. Oh, cool. I was working for Tom Oberheim at the, at the time, and I managed to get in touch with Carrie, and I said, you can have one of these free C-Sound solo units, but the caveat is <laughs> I have to come out to your studio in Kansas and install it. <laughs> And in the process, I broke his satellite uplink. Um, and I was absolutely shocked when he contacted me about a week later and said, hey, I really enjoyed you know, meeting you. you know, do, you, do you want to do these other things? And then he recommended me to work with Neil and then to Steve Morse. And it sort of snowballed from there. Cool. And I was also always interested in science. Mm. But I didn't really know how that could turn into a career. And I knew that eventually that I wanted to do a PhD. Yeah. And I knew it would be in this area, but they really didn't come together until 
I was working with Corolla. Despite all of the craziness at the moment, it's brilliant to be able to talk to you all the way in Texas. Is it Texas? I assume you're in Texas at the moment. Actually, I'm in Cape Cod right now. Wow. Okay, great. Well, yeah, I figured with all this craziness, I'm going to go to an island. That'll be the best place. (laughs) (laughs) And because you mentioned your PhD, because that was going on a journey as well. In terms of the beginning, it wasn't as closely tied to your work as a producer, to your work as a music technologist. It sort of evolved, didn't it? It did. It really did. It, it started at uh, University of, of Glasgow, mm. where I was working on human interface devices. It's funny. I guess you don't really know anything about doing a PhD until you do it. Mm. And sort of all the ideas I, I had were, you know, from all the superheroes that have done <laughs> PhDs, you know, in the movies where you watch them doing their research, which, of course, doesn't exist. And I was really sort of struggling. But of course, Corolla is a fantastic advisor. Mm. At the time, I was doing research as a producer and didn't realize that I was doing research. Because yeah. mm. uh, Flying Colors, we were doing a live album called Live of the Z7. You know, everything is done pretty cheaply today in, in, in the industry, as I'm sure you guys know. You know, you only film one show and there are no retakes during the show. And whatever happens, happens. Yeah. And what happened was that there were massive technical failures with the microphones. Wow. Not recording stuff and static and interference. We had 24 cameras, but the four main ones failed. Oh, man. And so we're left with like this wonderful show, but the audio is not listenable. Everything else is GoPro cameras. And we kind of already spent the advance from the record label. <laughs> so enter creative pull. <laughs> I started thinking like, wow. well, how do I reconstruct these performances? Because I can't just copy stuff and try and do that because you know these are very particular performers. Mm. And Corolla helped me realize that maybe this could be my PhD topic. Mm. And it's lovely, you know, the mentioning of creative pull, I had forgotten that, which, of course, is in opposition to technology pull, because that's, of course, exactly what you then went on to do, that you developed the technology that you, at the time, didn't actually have. Yeah, and it really came from the necessity of it. Otherwise, it never would have occurred to me to do something like this, because it seemed like it was solving a problem that didn't exist. And while I was doing it, my attention really turned to, instead of fixing performances, the idea of restoring them. Because it wasn't that there were mistakes I needed to fix. There was no audio. Mm. So the question is, what would have Steve Morse played? And during one of his big solos on Live at the Z7, he didn't actually play that. He played some of it. (laughs) But the rest of it was constructed really studying his playing and technique he told me afterwards that you couldn't tell which part was his mm-hmm. and which part had been constructed and i think that's really the moment when i realized maybe this could really be yeah. a phd topic and of course i remember us discussing you know for hours this notion of an intentional life intentionally designed life experience mm. That, you know, we're beyond the point where we just want to document a live performance. You know, yes, you you could just, you know, record a live performance as well as you can. But actually, you want to get the experience of a live feel and, uh, you know, that that sort of live experience. And that takes something in addition to just simply documenting what has happened live. Can I ask you, Bill, because we are, of course exploring the interaction between the music industry and academia Mm. and knowing that you juggled both for quite a long time. I guess one of the things that might be also quite interesting to explore is where was it hard to juggle both and where did it sort of bi-directionally benefit having, you know, a foot in both camps? That is a fantastic question. And it's one that I'm dealing with right now as in today 
what I started doing was with Flying Colors and then with other artists was whenever I would do an album, I would research and create new technologies just for that album. And that sort of became the shtick I had and why people would work with me because I could develop, you know, a custom thing. With the training that I got working with Corolla as a scientist, I know that research takes a long time. What has been very challenging is that the artists often and very understandably don't want to wait hmm. because sometimes it takes me a long time to get right. Hmm. I was afforded a wide buffer on Live at the Z7, but on other projects, like the I'm working on one now, it's a, it's a follow-up album, sort of a mutual appreciation society. And it's Sterling Ball with John Ferraro and Jim Cox, Steve Vai, Steve Lukather, Steve Whoa. Morse, Joe Bonamassa, <laughs> John Petrucci, Albert Lee, <laughs> Chad Wackerman. Wow. I mean, just, just lots and lots yeah. of people. Everyone. Yeah, <laughs> You know, they brought me in to do the first album a couple of years ago because of what I had created for Live at the Z7. I learned that unlike the research process, which has feedback, that when I work with artists like that, I have to get it right the first time and I can't ask any questions. Hmm. And it really hit home for me. This is my favorite story about that album is I was working on a track and the whole album's instrumental. Jay Graydon was the guitarist on this track. I remember I had done some very subtle shifting of tempo on sort of the feel of the kicks and snares. And I got an email back from, from Graydon saying, the song isn't funny anymore. <laughs> and I'm like, what? <laughs> this, this is like an like a instrumental blues thing. There's nothing. <laughs> That's brilliant. What do you mean it's not funny anymore? And now, of course, I didn't say that out loud. Yeah. Out loud, I said, I look forward to thinking and reflecting on your feedback. <laughs> and then like, I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. I, I, I was changing, you know, moving the snare and kick a little bit, suddenly make a song not funny. It was a lot of pressure. <laughs> because... It was explained to me by, by Steve that there's a long line of people waiting to work with these guys. If you, you, know, you make a mistake, this is the next person in line. I've seen that happen with Flying Colors, mm -hmm. you know, where we've sent people home while we're on tour. Eventually, I did figure it out, and I sent it back, and everyone's like, ah, okay, now it's funny again. <laughs> <laughs> like, mm -hmm. All right. Do you know what uh, it was that you did to make it funny again? Yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah. It was... Uh, how do, how do I even explain this? It was the timing was a little too rigid. Ah, okay. But it was it, it was how it was rigid yeah. that was because you know I don't use like a click track mm. or you know a grid, but yeah, it, it um, had to do with how lazy either the kick or the snare was. Right. So yeah, yeah. that. Um, but I mean, you know, he's got literally a wall of Grammys. <laughs> I mean, what what. <laughs> what am I going to be like? No, I don't agree with you. <laughs> <That's brilliant. laughs> Could you delve into your live performance software and what it does? It'd be fascinating to hear you explain it, I'm sure. Which software? The harmonic phrase analysis used on um, Second Flight. Oh, right. Okay. Or any other that you've done that's, that's relevant. Mm. Well, there's, a, there's another live performance software that I'm working on with a company that's actually for performing live. You mean for restoring live performances? Yeah, both, I guess. would be fantastic. Yeah. Well, the live performance stuff was, I think, really all back to creative pull mm. in that I had to first decide what do I need the software to do? And then I realized in order to do that, I needed it to say, well, what do I want to fix? And before I knew it, I had to decide what is a live performance. And sort of work back from there and then have the software and the techniques that I developed sort of meet that objective. And so I'll quickly say what that is, which is this idea of what I call performance restoration, which is that I never fix a problem. Cool. And there's no re-recording on any live album I've ever worked on. 
because to me, I mean, every live album is basically a studio album these days. Mm. And I didn't want to do that because I didn't think it was useful. Yeah. The question I asked myself yeah. was instead of fixing things, could I restore a performance? And so the research that I did revealed that even when people make quote unquote mistakes, they usually get most of it right. And so the question is, if we have something that someone's recorded and we look at it as a mistake, can we extract and preserve all the things that were correct? Mm. And it turned out that mm. you could. And there's been a lot of research on this, on the cognitive aspects of it in terms of how musicians will conceive what they're going to play cognitively, create a hierarchical motor map, download that motor map sort of, and something will go wrong but most of it still goes right. In Live at the Z7, there's no copy and pasting of anything. There's parts where there were dropouts, but whether there were parts where there were static or whatnot, on albums since then, when there's a quote-unquote mistake, I'm always able to pull... You know, for example, let's say someone is alternate picking and they're accidentally hitting the strings and the strings are resonating. Mm. Well, the question is, can I get rid of those strings that are resonating and just preserve what was originally played? Let's say that the person is playing a piano part and accidentally hits a couple of keys at the same time. Can we get rid of those ones? On guitar, maybe someone is picking and accidentally has muted a note while it should have been open. Mm. Well, when I look at that, mm -hmm. the timing is still correct. The attack on the pick is still correct. And by looking at the notes that came before and after and the harmonics on the picking, I can extract what that note would have sounded like and actually use. You can't do this with a waveform editor, but if you're editing just purely harmonics, you know, you can sort of really decompose things and say, okay, I'm going to keep these harmonics. It might be sometimes with a guitar that the volume envelope is correct, but the person played the wrong note. So I can apply that. So the idea is, is preserving as many parts as possible of the original performance. And I think you end up with a much more valuable performance for the listener because it's much closer to a real... Hmm performance, all those amazing moments that only come across from interactions between live musicians, a lot of that is preserved with performance restoration. And I seem to remember you had a whole taxonomy of different types of quotation mark mistakes and what the restoration equivalent would be. There was a whole pages of pages of different types of errors. Could it be compared to resynthesis, maybe? In a, in a way, sometimes when there are really terrible problems, I will resynthesize it by drawing individual harmonics. Yeah. Those kinds of things. I do a lot with just, you know, working in a harmonic editor and just working with direct harmonics. That's actually, that's all that I, that I work with. So yeah, there is a lot of resynthesis. So the software that I developed was sort of a reimagining of saying, well, if that's what my goal is, what's the best kind of workflow for that? Mm. And I have a very short attention span. I'm American. <laughs> I remember I'm an isotope in Dorsey, and, and I remember that I was working in a studio with a client, and I was using this piece of isotope software, and like, I couldn't get it to do what I wanted. And I said, this software is so opaque. It has the worst interface. No one can understand this thing. And let's go to their website. And I go to their website and on the support page is a photo of me and a quote saying, this piece of software <laughs> is the easiest interface <laughs> in the industry. And there was a long pause and I looked at my clients and I said, you guys are screwed. <laughs> <laughs> Let me know if you want me to edit that out. It's not a problem. Yeah. <laughs> I love isotope software and it's a, it's a huge part of, of what I do. Yeah, me too. I love it. What I was thinking was that there's a lot of sort of stuff between me and the sound. Mm. And I want to get rid of all the stuff. And I just want to work with the sound. And my thinking was, 
to have direct manipulation of the sound. Mm. This enormous skill set that you have to develop to change sound in a DAW, you know, it's, it's a lifelong thing yeah. where you're, you're always learning. And I'm thinking, is there anything that millions of years of evolution has already instilled with us that is equally as complex in terms of creating and modifying things? And I thought, well, I can take a piece of clay and I can make a house out of it. And it's a bad looking house. But cognitively, <laughs> there are amazing things going on to envision a shape in your head. And then all the things that you know you need to do cognitively and physically to actually create that. And as you're working on it, to constantly be comparing it to the result that you want. Mm. Mm. So I thought, well, what if the sound was a piece of clay? And you shaped and molded the clay, and that was your sound. And I just started thinking, could I do everything that you could do in a DAW with that? And could I also do everything you needed to do for performance restoration? Because to do performance restoration, you can't use a DAW. None of those tools and plugins and whatnot can do those kinds of things. They're designed for editing, mm. not for resynthesis, not for reconstructing, mm -hmm. not for musical feature extraction. Mm. So there was the idea that you would present the music as a piece of clay. And I remember when I came up with that, I had a meeting with Corolla, and I was supposed to present some major research to her. And it was 10 minutes before, and I was in the shower, <laughs> and I was like, man, I better come up with something because... <laughs> And so my thought was an FFT landscape. Uh, okay. And this is a three-dimensional representation, but that also actually tells you everything about the music and also mm. can show you if you don't know what an FFT is mm. by changing it. Because if you just drop all the harmonics and keep the fundamentals, you have a MIDI roll. Of course, yeah. Mm -hmm. mm. I mean, it's literally a MIDI roll. You've got the length of the height is the amplitude mm. and the start and the stop. Yeah. And you can simply visually overlay things like bars and automation data and stuff on top of that. And when you want to make changes to the music, you do it by actually shaping and molding the clay. So if you want to make an attack on a harmonic softer, you just reshape <laughs> the actual harmonic on the, the shape of the harmonics. From there, I added virtual instruments and stuff. I didn't want to have modes. I don't like that there's like different modes. There's like audio tracks and there's MIDI tracks. Yeah. I have a just mm. one kind of track that is our virtual instruments, but it's also the waveform data based on the fact that you can render the new audio while someone is moving the MIDI note so that you have a MIDI representation, mm. which is actually the audio itself if that makes any sense. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yes. And I come back to this lovely, lovely analogy because, you know, what you've described is such a fabulous example of creative pull. And the term was actually coined by a colleague actually at Glasgow University who said he wanted to build the camera while making the film. Yeah. And of course, a lot of technology sectors are doing that now so that you have this creative pull. So the creative inspiration actually pulls the technology along and you develop software or tools or hardware in relation to the creative need. And I think it happens more in the animation, in the film sector, than possibly in the music production sector. Yeah. But Tim and Russ can tell me off if that's not the case. No. But uh, I thought your work, Bill, was such a fabulous example of that kind of creative pull that pulls uh, technology development along and thus then provides new tools mm. for other musicians and music producers too. Yeah, that's amazing. Bill, it'd be brilliant to know what caused you to get into higher education teaching. That's a good question. <laughs> I love talking in front of people. I love people. I'm an extrovert. And I almost sort of view teaching as a performance. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I just, I love it. I think maybe because when I was a lad, I had trouble in school. I was put in a special class. I rode the short bus. And I sort of came to this conclusion that there were a lot of people who were sort of left behind by sort of a standard approach to teaching. Yeah. And that if I could teach small enough classes, 
And I didn't have, you know, a huge amount of red tape from, say, the university and, say, lots of meetings to go to and (laughs) needed to make deals with corporate (laughs) companies and do original research, that there would be time to engage the students. And I found I loved it. I actually had my first teaching position when I was still an undergrad, Clark University, because they lost their teacher in the middle of the semester and they couldn't find anyone. And so it was like, do you know Java, Bill? I'm like, yeah. You want to teach it? <laughs> you know? I'm like, okay. You know, I've loved it ever since then. To me, it's a wonderful opportunity, the teaching part. Yeah. So, yeah, when I was at MMU, I was very kindly offered the opportunity to teach. And I just kept asking for more and more classes. I just loved it. <laughs> We've on the podcast also talked about how in higher education, we've done this thing in conceptualizing employability as a set of skills. But of course, it's also an induction process Mm. in inducting young talent into the music industry, in getting them to understand what it means to be part of a membership of professional industry, actors and talent. I know that you were very good in relation to linking students to the industry as such. But did you find there were tensions there, the academic side versus the industry side, or was it a synergy? I feel, I mean, and of course, every lecturer struggles with this, that there's tremendous synergy. And I think the problem is that industry doesn't recognize how valuable it is to have someone with formal training. Everyone in Flying Colors went to Berkeley School of Music. Hmm. And if they didn't, and they were trying to explain this transition from 23-7 to 8-6, but because they all went, you know, you have a common language. And it's the same thing when I hire an engineer and they have a degree from a university. To me, that's an immediate, I'm not sure if this is what you're asking, but to me, that's an immediate huge plus because it means that they know a wide range of things. And if they've graduated, that means they have been assessed. And so I can immediately make assumptions about what this person can do, whereas you have very capable people that have just come up through industry, but I don't know what they can do. I don't know how they're going to do things. And it's really manifested itself in a lot of very strange ways in that one of the things that really surprised me is is when I'm working with all these top artists and engineers, and I'm interested if you guys have had the same experience, The quality of the work creatively is always good, but technically it's usually horrible. (laughs) The tracks that I get from, I had one engineer who was $15,000 a day and there was distortion all over it. Pretty much, I mean, there's a few exceptions. All of the recorded audio that I've gotten from very fancy engineers has been terrible in terms of the quality. It's distorted, there's coughing, I've had people stopping in the middle of a vocal take and cursing and like that's turned into me on the vocal. But I mean, these are on half million dollar major label albums. Wow. And everything I get is like that. And I'm just like, wow. I told one of them at some point, I said, you know, my first year students had better work than this. They don't have your knowledge of mic placement, but like they know it should be quiet. There should be. No distortion. There should Mm. be dynamic range. So the first answer to your question is that as an employer, I want people with degrees. But industry really doesn't value it. Mm. Mm. No. You know, the other thing that I found is that software companies, music companies, really look down my experience. You know, I've worked with, I don't want to say anything specific company here, but a lot of companies, I'll say, well, who's doing your user interface work? Can I talk to your user interface work? And they said, oh, yeah, no, we, we just have some, some people who do that. And I said, well, don't you have like people with like, you know, master's degrees and PhDs who are doing this? And they laugh and they always say, why would a software company need a PhD? 
Wow. <laughs> Interesting you say that, though, of course, because Isotope does have, I, I believe, a couple of post-doc researchers that work for them, and their sole job is to go around actually predicting and doing research papers, meeting others at conferences to sort of not data mine so much, but to see what the leading research is, to be part of that community and bring that back to Isotope Towers. Um, is that your experience? No. And I, I think that there's a... Okay. <laughs> a, a, a correlation with Isotope being such an innovative company. I mean, that's mm-hmm. to me, that's really where most of the innovation is happening in industry right now is at Isotope. It's really no surprise. And you look at other companies who have nobody. I mean, I made a presentation to, it's one of the biggest companies in the world. All the presidents were there and I said, this is science, you know, and we can do all these things that have never been done before. <laughs> I'll need a team of researchers to do this. And I finished, and they all had this weird look on their face. And I said, well, we develop products. Why do we want to do research? (laughs) Wow. I said, well, if you want (laughs) to have innovative products, you know, because I had listened to all their problems that they were struggling with in their software. And I said, you realize scientists have have already solved every problem you've discussed. If you just go into the literature – you know, 20 years of stuff. You know, one of them was like, well, we really want to do polyphonic pitch recognition. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you know, there's a paper or two on that. Yeah. <laughs> we heard of AES. Yeah. <laughs> right. And at one company, the fact that I was a PhD actually worked against me. Yeah. They love this idea that people in academia don't live in the real world as if when we go home, we go to <laughs> Mars, you know? Yeah. <laughs> So true, and it's nice to hear Bill say it. Yeah, because yeah. I was thinking of the things that you said in the past, Russ. Mm. The leaders in the music industry are still of a generation where you couldn't even study music technology yeah. or music production in an institution. Mm. So they had to make their way despite the systems rather than because of them. And I think I do have a feeling that maybe that will shift Other areas, whether that's animation or whether that's film technology, they are slightly older in relation to their interaction between academic research and their productivity or their products or their services or their films that they produce. But I think we're now at the brink where it's happening quite fast. And maybe, Bill, you are one example of that, actually, of that generation which will pave the way forward where there's in the future more interaction between academic research and industry innovation. What do you guys think? Well, my personal experience is that there seems to be, certainly in the UK, and you may have some experience of this, Bill, but there seems to be, Carol neatly put it really, you know, the PhDs or the academics on one side are kept quite away from the industry because you have a foot in both camps, as I do. You're kind of seen down to, but not in the kind of other way, as I say it, which is if you can teach what you do, is that not an enhancement of what you do? I do think it's changing and a lot of Corolla's work is exactly on that. I think it's slowly changing. I think the the frustration, I suppose, on my part is the speed at which either it's not changing or you kind of set there going, come on then. (laughs) As if you have to say that research is valuable because then you know things. <laughs> Not something that really ridiculous. <laughs> it's sad that isotopes should be an outlier. Yeah. I think in academia, we have to also take ownership of some of the faults that we contributed to the situation. Because specifically in the UK, mm. now the US tends to be better in exploiting the research that its academic systems actually produces. Whereas in the UK, the typical thing is that you produce something, you do a PhD, and then it sits on the shelf and the person writes several academic papers, gets to be become a professor, but it never is really exploited yeah. in the industry as much or as substantive as maybe in other countries. So we have had a bit of a divide. We've had a bit of a ivory tower complex. I don't want to say that we're all about that, but the incentives were rather to stay in academia and write those papers and go upwards on the academic career ladder rather than to say, actually, you can do both. Let's create some spin-out companies. Let's create some IP. Let's create some companies Mm. in relation to that. And, And we struggle with that a bit. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think we've really touched on something here. At least for me, I haven't really 
thought about it clearly enough, but I think that this is really a key issue. Mm. Tim, I think that you're another specific example. I saw your research on reactive backing tracks. Oh, yeah. And where did that come from? That that was, was research you did, but it happens to solve a problem. I knew that the problem had to come from, from science because it was just something that people weren't doing a lot of. It's a solution to the problem that I had. I was playing various bands and I, I thought, well, I love a bit of tech. Surely there's a bit of tech that'll do this thing. And there wasn't. There's some versions that do it in audio. Queen Mary in London in particular doing some amazing work. Oh, they do a lot of good stuff. Yeah. I was particularly interested that the ground truth for synchronization always seems to come down to foot tapping. So it occurred to me, well, why not use foot tapping then? Use it as a driver. I'm getting um, way too much into my own thing. This is about you. It's not about me. <laughs> it's a dialogue. And I think that that's a wonderful example of the importance of research you know, as a, as a company, a company yeah. can't go and research something like that. That's not how companies are structured. I do a lot of work with Steinberg. Jumping back to my software hardware thing for a second, it couldn't really be commercialized, one, because I would need a development team of like 50 people. It works, but very basically. Mm, yeah. I have this thing that people don't like encumbered user interfaces. So this object mm -hmm. is a three-dimensional display, but you don't wear glasses. And it's three-dimensionally haptic in that you can feel the objects that are floating in the air. So I had to invent, I think, what is the world's first, what I call the volumetric haptic display, which is a three-dimensional force field projection. Oh, cool. But that was, again, creative pull. Because otherwise, if you're just kind of moving your hand into a hologram, no one wants to do that. Yeah, yeah. Unless your hand actually stops at the border of the object, it's not terribly useful either. Hmm. But for example, the thing uses so much power that at my Viva, I had to have some kind of, I had to display a warning <laughs> because it drew a lot of power, which I thought was awesome. Yeah. But that couldn't really be commercialized. <laughs> but I found a brilliant, completely self-taught software engineer named Robin LaBelle. And he had developed a harmonic and harmonic editor. And I thought it was brilliant. He had had this idea, it was similar to mine, in that it was a visual approach. So the software was basically Photoshop for audio. <laughs> cool. I met him, I started as a user of the program. And then I said, if I design features for you, I won't charge you. Will you just put them in the program? Because I need them for my work. <laughs> and he said, sure. And we designed version five together. And then we were like, well, I'll bet Steinberg would buy this. <laughs> so we went to Steinberg and I made a presentation that was 12 hours long. Whoa. Nonstop because it was different groups of people. <laughs> I remember just wow. before I started, one of the vice presidents said, I just want to tell you, Bill, that everyone in the room thinks we shouldn't buy this product. <laughs> oh. <laughs> but they, they did. They distribute it. And I was able to take a lot of my research from the software I did from my PhD and integrate it into version 6, which is the version that Steinberg is currently shipping. So, so what's the product? It's called Spectral Layers. Right, okay. And Robin, I really can't say enough amazing things about him, for example, being self-taught and doing all of the code himself. He created the fastest FFT display there is. Wow. It's almost an order of magnitude faster than any other software. He was willing to take a step back and say, okay, we can redefine what this product does. But I also felt the product needed to be redefined in order to be really commercially successful. Just to sort of contextualize it for listeners. So is it like an editable sonogram? Yes. Okay. I'm just trying to think aloud. It's very different from RX. RX is like a brilliant series of algorithms. Mm. And they're incredible. Mm. And Spectral Layers literally has all the tools of Photoshop. Right. 
like paintbrushes. It works with a tablet. And one of the things that I did in version six was made it so that all the selection work is the same. So I can draw a selection around something and then drag a selection handle and that'll make it longer. If you have crossfades, mm. they're visual and you can see the crossfades visually, just right. like you can see a mask in Photoshop. And a lot of that mm. is pulling also from Robin's originally brilliant idea, but it was literally me taking the PhD work and putting it into a product and then taking it to a company wow. right? and saying, you've never seen actually anything that does this because part of where they're coming from is, well, what would anyone want to do with this? <laughs> I think it's a real credit to Steinberg, which has an incredible history of innovation mm -hmm. in the industry because they report to stockholders. Yeah. One of the big things against innovation in companies is they might want to do something really cool, but you'll get fired if you devote all of these resources to some new piece of research and it doesn't sell product, yeah. you're fired. Yeah. Nobody gets fired for introducing a vocal doubler in the DAW. <laughs> yeah. You know, but the problem came to marketing it because how do you market a type mm. of software that has never existed before? Yeah. And that was another mm. thing about research Definitely. is when you have something, because I think all of us as researchers, we like the bold ideas. We don't like incremental steps. Yeah. And this piece of software was completely crazy. I spent about six months coming up with a marketing campaign to try and explain to people why this would be useful because mm -hmm. you look at a photo of it and you don't even know what it does. <laughs> like, well, what is this thing? Well, I mean, I'm looking at it. I'm looking at it now, but apart from my knowledge of a Cedar and RX, it certainly fits in those kind of places, but it does seem quite unique. I think that's another big part of the challenge is yes, there's, I hate to say it, but a jealousy of, this idea that you have this education that where some people feel threatened, which I don't think is true at all. But mm. I mean, to be perfectly blunt, I've seen that a lot, not just with me, but with mm. other people at mm. some companies. You have to have a company whose culture is interested in innovation. Steinberg is interested in innovation. Yeah. And you have to present it in such a way that it's not too big a risk for the company. Mm. Because if you're a responsible manager, if your product fails, you know, I don't know how many people work on Cubase, but it's something like a hundred. Mm. Yeah. And I think that's where the industry university partnerships come in. You know, that's where we need to do more of that mm. because universities are there to take risks so they can take the large part of the risk taking in terms of pushing boundaries forward. Yeah. And what businesses are good at is understanding what parts or all of it, you know, what parts could be marketable. But I think mm. we also in the university sector have to learn better how we do these partnerships. I increasingly talk about the permeable university yeah. where we need to become more permeable, where, you know, industry has to come in and out of our learning environments, but also where our researchers interact with the industry much more than have been before. Mm. I agree. And, and you're amazing at that from having worked with you. <laughs> I do think most of the onus is on industry. You know, I see people in academia doing backflips to try and get industry's attention. Yeah. One of the things that I've argued in these meetings with companies is it's really cheap, you know? <laughs> you know what I think it comes down to? I was thinking about this the other day. People don't understand what the research process really is. Mm. Mm. Including researchers often. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, especially. But the way that you acquire new knowledge and learning to do that is a big part of what the PhD process is about and demonstrating that you can do that. And when I speak to people at companies, they say, well, our engineers can do that. Mm -hmm. And I very humbly say, no, they can't because they're not trained to do it. Engineers are just as brilliant, but they implement research, just like doctors, physicians implement research done by scientists, but they think that they could do it. Hmm. And they can't. I think that's where they're like, oh, well, you know, you I had one person say, 
academics think that you're the only people that can invent stuff. And I'm thinking to myself, well, if you look at most of the technologies that we use, that's who it was invented by. Mm. And then you have a brilliant team of engineers like you have, which created a product out of it. But they don't get that research is a skill in and of itself. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. It's an instrumentalization of research, which, yeah, might have its own challenges. There does seem to be a certain selection of music tech companies or maybe even a society of music tech development that is maybe more open to innovation and research. Is it that there requires a certain distance from the music industry for the tech companies to take you seriously so they don't have that chip on their shoulder? It's a good question. I was lucky in that through my work with Flying Colors, mm. I know a lot of these people at these companies. There's a huge amount of pressure for profit at companies. Oh, yeah, absolutely. They want to bring in people that have proven success, not realizing that attaining a PhD is an incredible mark of success. Do you know what I mean? It's not like, oh, well, what else have you done? It's like, <laughs> well, I did that. And that proves, you know, that this person can do original research in the field. But I also think that once they learn all the advantages of it, I think it's a wall that will come tumbling down mm. and it'll be like, I can't believe it used to be like this because I think they work together beautifully. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. For me, the industry work with Flying Colors has really helped me to have an insight as to what people need in products and what can go wrong and what people will respond to. You know, all, all the live performance software works from a click. Yeah. And the thing is, nobody wants to play live to a click. Exactly. But when you're in front of, I don't know, I think Neil Morse band, we did one show for 25,000 people. He was using main stage oh, yeah. and it crashed in the middle of the show. Oof. <laughs> oh, God. The fear is that if the click skips or something, if it's trying to figure out the tempo yeah. and there's a skip, yeah. you can't have a train wreck. Mm. And right now, yours is the only technology that I could see where possibly a train wreck could be avoided because, you know, great players will compensate. Mm. it's interesting i did have to design it with a panic button and i've only had to use it once i've done a few very small gigs just to purely road test it and there was only one song out of i think four four sets this is a while ago and i think it was just because i pulled out of that zone where i was used to the system and it started to gallop and it was a fast song and i was into it but i forgot that my foot was driving it was really interesting fortunately i remembered where the panic button was and jumped on it, and it reverted to a typical play-to-click. And because the track was quite rhythmic, it was fairly easy to do. No one noticed, which was the beauty of it. But I was absolutely pooping myself, if I'm honest. <laughs> That's how I feel when I'm performing and, and things go right. <laughs> I did a or with Steve Morris playing keyboards. I'm not a great player. His other keyboard players were Chick Corea and T. Lavitz. <laughs> oh, man. No pressure then. You're in good company, Bill. <laughs> and Steve is an incredibly nice guy. And, you know, we're playing, and every once in a while, Steve just kind of looks back at me with just sort of a little bit of a quizzical look, and then, you know, back to the audience. And <laughs> I can't ask him what that means, but one of the other band members said, <laughs> you were making mistakes. And no keyboard player has ever made mistakes <laughs> with <laughs> So that was a look of surprise. Oh, man. One of the things that I learned in terms of applying industry to this product mm. was from Live at the Z7 to take it back to that. Because another thing that happened that night was that they wouldn't let our lighting person run the lights. Oh. The venue which will remain nameless, although it's in the title. <laughs> and to be fair, it is a fabulous venue. Without it, there would be a lot of problems for progressive rock bands. But for whatever reason, I gave them the lighting cues, and he said, well, I'm not going to follow any of these. 
And I pointed to the 24 cameras we had filming and I said, we really need to use the lighting cues. Can you please do that? And he said, no, 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 I, I know better. And one of the things I learned from Steve on tour with him was that no matter how big an artist you're with, nobody cares. <laughs> because yeah. the next night, guess what? Another big artist is there. And so as an artist, you have to be really nice to the venue people. <laughs> we treat them like gold whenever we play somewhere. Yeah. Because if you don't, <laughs> we couldn't really <laughs> complain about this. There was nothing that we can do. We didn't want to cause a scene because we play at the Z7 six times a year, and it's one of the best clubs we play. So mm -hmm. during the show, lights are coming on on completely random places. <laughs> Even though these are some of the most experienced performers in the world, it completely threw them. You know, someone would be playing a solo and a spotlight would come up on Mike, who's not playing <laughs> and just sitting at his drums. Wow. And if you know Mike, he's a complete perfectionist about everything. And he's hardest on himself. <laughs> Everyone in the band, some of them flipped out because they realized this was the show. And it's like, we can't use this just because the lighting is all wrong. What do you do? When someone plays a solo mm. and there's no light on that person, who are you going to cut to? Because the rest of the stage is black. Uh. <laughs> oh, man. And so they made mistakes. Every time there was like a lighting cue that was like mm. someone was playing a solo and the light flipped off them, mm. they're human. Yeah. And they would skip a beat or skip a note. And of course, there's the incredible pressure of performing with no reshoots yeah for a show it's incredible that's what made me think about the error correction mm. how important the error correction was because i realized that even uh dave larue if something bad happens they're gonna get thrown wow yeah well especially when their parts are so busy Is there any particular advice that you can think of that you would potentially give to students about employability, networking? What do you think are the most important things that people need to be doing at the moment? The first thing that I would say to students is to realize that your instructors are an incredible resource, even if like, you know, they, ha they don't do the genre. Maybe they do punk rock or maybe they do electronica. Yeah the fact that they have spent all their time teaching and not being on tour doesn't mean that they don't have a lot to teach you about being on tour. It's simply something that's completely different that you can't get from people who are just, you know, out there doing it. Yeah. I was so blown away by the dedication and the skill of the teachers at MMU at their Ability. I mean, I looked at them as rock stars because looking at how they solved particular problems when students couldn't get things. And I was like, these are like the pedagogical equivalents of Steve Morse. Oh. <laughs> I was just in awe of that. And I would say, don't take that for granted. They know stuff. And a lot of this stuff is difficult to assimilate. I do a lot of teaching of people that I work with. But that's not under the same circumstances as someone who's dedicated their life to doing it. And this is like their world where they do it. Mm. Also, to really pick a place that you really believe in that can prepare you because it's a lot of money. Mm. Yeah. In terms of what you do while you're there, to learn as much as possible from everybody. And to try and work with every instructor, at least one class, because each one of them will have some tremendous area of expertise that you can learn from. To recognize that having a degree is hugely useful in industry, whether industry people know it or not. Mm -hmm. People who have had the degree know. All the people who personally work for me all have degrees. Mm -hmm. And I depend on it. That's just like a qualification because it means that they know how to do all these things, not like person does yeah. this really well. It's brilliant to hear that from you. Mm. Thank you. Nice.
it was an amazing learning experience working with Jason, you know, particularly he really mentored me as a lecturer. I get a lot of questions about how do you promote your music and how do you network? And I would say that the best thing to do is one, to be really nice. (laughs) If you're really nice, that is amazing. I don't think anyone will mind in the band if I tell the story. We were on tour and the Flying Colors tours are pretty significant tours in, in that we're playing decent sized arenas and tickets are expensive. And the end result is that there's tremendous pressure on everyone. Mm. People are always like, oh, when's the party after the show? And it's like, we're going to bed. <laughs> I don't know where, what you're talking about. There's no party after the show because you have to monetize every moment. So even the performers from the time we get to load in, yeah. they're doing VIP meet and greet, they're doing interviews, they're doing contests. And so the pressure is intense. And as someone new, you'll screw up. We had someone on Live at the Z7 tour, actually, who was our lighting person. And it turned out he actually didn't know anything about running lights. Uh. Mike and I were talking and you know, normally you just send someone like that home, but he had such a good attitude. He was so professional. He was so nice. He was so punctual that Mike said, you know what? I'm sure we can find something for this guy to do. Wow. And that's a huge thing because, yeah. you know, people always say, oh, you know, the money's in touring. A lot of tours lose money. Mm. Yeah, still. Mm. Yeah, it's a lot of money to keep someone on full time for a world tour. But it really struck home to me when I've asked people like, Steve, why do you work with me instead of other people? Because I make a lot of mistakes with what I do. He thought and he said, well, you know, you always look at other people's perspective when there's a disagreement. I really like that. (laughs) And that was it. That's why I get to work with Legendary, you know, not because I'm good at what I do, but because... (laughs) I'm pretty sure you are. <laughs> well, it was the same thing with me working with Carrie Lifrin in that I was just nice. And it sounds really basic, but so many people are not mm. being honest. When you screw up, immediately say that you screwed up. Yeah. Nobody cares. I know you guys know this. Nobody cares whose fault it is. Hmm. All they want to know is that there's a problem. Yeah. And what are you doing to fix it? Mm. And don't be afraid of screwing up. Exactly. If you're honest, if you're nice, be on time and be prepared and know a body of knowledge. But if you have the degree, that one's already checked off. Yeah. If you do the other three, you will get hired. <laughs> because people like that are considered, even at the very highest levels, we can never find anyone who is all for. Hmm. And Mm. then your question simply becomes, well, how do I network? I don't ever want to tell people to do free work. And I never accept free work from anyone. Even if they're just starting out, I pay them something. But I would say to get involved in projects where there are people who know other people and they will recommend you. Yeah. And it doesn't matter what you're doing. You could be sweeping the floor. You know, I've hired people who I'll just look at their work ethic. Because when you're working with people in music, as you guys know, and as you know, Corolla, you're around them constantly. So if someone is fun to be around, (laughs) boy, that that really, you know, Mike Portnoy, when we met, he really liked that I could do every voice on Family Guy. (laughs) South Park and other things. And he loved that. (laughs) Cool. I don't think he knew anything else about me, but he was like, I remember when he introduced me to Michael Brower, when we mixed (laughs) with Michael Brower, he wasn't like, this is the guy with flying colors. Mike was like, you got to hear this guy's impressions. (laughs) (laughs) So I guess in summation, I would say in a way, it's incredibly easy to be successful in the industry. If you are nice, if you're professional, if you're honest and you have a wide range of knowledge people will hire you because there are no people like that. (laughs) You would think that if you're paying a lot of money, you can get someone with everything, Mm. but you can't because that person doesn't exist. If you can be 
that woman or that man who ticks those four boxes, man, it doesn't matter if you're not good at what you're doing, because what we say is, yeah, we'll teach them. And we do. Mm. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yes. That's brilliant. Thank you, Bill. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for pretending to be interested. <laughs> There's no pretense. <laughs> Thank you for listening to episode five of Sound Learnings. Sound Learnings is produced by Tim Kanfer, Russell Bathsoya, and Corolla Bohm. Editing, mixing, and music composition is by me, Tim Kanfer. Russell Bathsoya does the mastering, and Corolla Bohm does the show notes and social media. Sound Learnings is hosted by Acast, and if you have enjoyed the podcast, please leave us a review or give us a shout on your favourite social media platform. It really does help. Goodbye for now. Bye. Bye. Yeah, I should explain that I'm in the back of a car because I'm noisy young children. <laughs> and I'm noisy, apparently, and I stop them from going to bed. So I apologise for that. I'm in the back of a Ford currently. So what we don't see, Bill, is that Tim has lines, <laughs> Ethernet lines going out to the house as well. <laughs> it's the only way to do it reliably. You know? <laughs>